0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
1: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times. With me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. And down the line from John Charko, we have senior technical manager there, Ray Bulger. Today we'll be talking about mortgages in the UK. Are they overheating? Then to the latest news about Barclays shenanigans in Qatar. And finally, a look at the US banking CEO market. First, though, to that topic of the UK mortgage market, ever since the financial crisis, there's been a lot of talk about when we'll be back in danger territory, are we in a bubble, and so on. But the latest data, I suppose, show mixed messages. Ray, thanks for joining us. First of all, what are the most interesting features that you're seeing in the market? It's clearly resurgent in terms of volumes in many ways.
1: Well, that's right. But in particular, that's happening in the remortgage market purchase business is picking up now after being relatively weak in the latter part of last year and early this year but remortgage activity is picking up much more strongly for example the um, august mortgage approval numbers for remortgages just announced by the bank of england show a 29.6 percent year-on-year rise which is the biggest rise for a long time and so i think at last people are beginning to recognize the good rates available to remortgage and perhaps despite the fact that the first bank rate rise looks increasingly further away, finding it worthwhile to remortgage.
0: Yeah, people are locking in for another five-year stint or something.
1: Yeah, the majority of people are switching to fixed rates and five-year fixes are very popular. I think one of the factors that may be making it more viable for more people to remortgage is that as property prices increase and people increasingly pay off their mortgage, that's those people who've got a repayment mortgage, which is the majority, their loan-to-value... And decreases. And that means they have more access to the better rates.
0: Yeah. Now, as a journalist and a doom there are things out there that seem concerning to me as well. You know, some of the boom day features coming back into mortgages, the kind of very high loan to value percentages being available, the interest only seemingly launched again by some lenders. To what extent do you think we should be worried about toppy conditions?
1: I think we're a long way from having to be worried. I mean, looking at interest only, we are seeing more lenders come back into this market, but with very strict criteria. For example, RBS-Matt West have just come in this week, but they require clients to have a minimum income of 100000 to even qualify. And nearly all of the lenders in that market require people to have minimum equity of well into six figures, and in some cases as much as 300000 So the availability of interest-only mortgages is still very restricted.
0: What about buy-to-let? Because that's certainly a very uh, lively market at the moment.
1: Buy-to-let is certainly the biggest driver in terms of the increase in mortgage lending. Last year, buy-to-let represented £27.4 out of total lending of just under £204 And this year, it looks like showing growth of around 15%, probably going to be in the region of 31 billion. And that will represent the bulk of the small increase we're likely to see in total lending. So that's certainly where the demand is. And, of course, that simply reflects the changing nature of the UK residential property with buy-to-let replacing the social sector as far as rent's concerned and the proportion of properties owned by um, residential owners actually slowly declining.
0: Let me leave you there, Ray, and just bring in Caroline, who's been looking at the latest risk report, essentially, from the Bank of England on this and other areas. Caroline, how concerned are regulators about the buy-to-let market?
2: There is certainly a concern from the Bank of England. And in last week's outlook from the Financial Policy Committee, they flagged particularly buy-to-let as one of the items on their radar of things generally to be concerned about. And there's a few reasons for this. As Ray said, buy-to-let as a proportion of the mortgage market has risen exponentially, particularly since the financial crisis. And one of the reasons for this is obviously that house prices are outpacing income and therefore more people are driven towards the buy-to-let market. Also, we've got rising pressure on supply as well, and policymakers are concerned that buy-to-let can exacerbate that. So their general concern is one that buy to let amplifies booms and busts, and it also puts pressure on owner occupiers perhaps to take on even larger loans. In terms of where the risks are for lenders, I think the Bank of England is a little bit more sanguine. They did use quite Uh, large fall in house prices in last year's stress test of banks' balance sheets and they found that really the banking system was quite resilient to a 35% fall in house prices. So for the moment, it's on their radar, but I think also the thing to remember is that they're very cognizant that George Osborne in July's budget had already moved to dampen the buy-to-let sector by announcing that there'd be a gradual phasing out of tax relief on mortgage interest payments.
0: If I could just come back to you, Ray, for a final comment. Do you think the Bank of England has struck the right tone? We're cautiously uh, concerned about the state of that market?
1: Yes, I do. I would find it hard to argue with many of their comments. And I think one of the points I make, which is very relevant, is the fact that because... The residential market is regulated they've got lots of data about regulated mortgages but they have relatively little data about buy-to-let mortgages so one of the things they're keen to do is to get more data before they actually do decide whether to impose any restrictions but I think it's almost certain the Chancellor will hand that power over to the FPC next year and quite likely they will use it at some stage next year.
0: Yeah definitely one to watch. Let's go to our second item. Now this is a look at Barclays and the long running investigation into the crisis time capital rating that they did with Qatar which put in 5.8 billion of fresh capital. Now back at that time Qatar received a 300 million or so so called fee and for a long time since they have been under investigation by various authorities. Some suspected that this may have been a bribe. Some suspected and continue to suspect that the money was somehow rooted into a reinvestment programme to kind of help prop up Barclays shares. It's all very arcane, but it's also very legally charged. And Caroline, you've been looking at the latest developments here.
2: This is about what was really going on at the time of Barclays' emergency cash call during the financial crisis. You'll remember that Barclays turned to Qatar in late 2008 in order to stave off any government rescue, which befell many of their UK rivals at the time. The SFO has been investigating the ins and outs of that deal for about the last two years, and that follows action by the UK regulator... It has already said that it would like to fine Barclays £50 million, but the bank will be contesting those findings. What's happened is that there has been a gagging order that's been lifted by the Crown Court over the reporting and even the mere mention of a secret two-day hearing in July. This was about whether key evidence in the case can be accessed by the SFO. Barclays says not, because this key material is covered by what's known as legal professional privilege, Normally, any advice that a lawyer gives to his client would be confidential, even in a criminal probe. The exception to this is what's called the fraud exception, and that's when it can be shown that lawyers were in on the alleged fraud. That's pertinent in this case, just because it can be noted that two of Barclay's most senior lawyers on the deal at the time, Mark Harding and Judith Shepherd, have both been interviewed under caution by the SFO previously. It should be noted that no charges have been filed either against Mr Harding or Miss Shepard or indeed any of the around 12 former Barclays employees that have been interviewed under caution so far. And you'll remember that includes Bob Diamond and John Varley, former chief executives, and Barclays itself denies wrongdoing in this matter.
0: It's all very intricate and potentially very damaging, I suppose, and costly for Barclays. But how does today's news take us on? Does it take us any closer to a resolution?
2: Well, I think that's the interesting thing. Earlier this summer, there were reports that the SFO had mooted what's called a Deferred Prosecution Agreement with Barclays. That's a US-style plea deal whereby any charges are suspended and the bank would essentially pay a fine. Anything where you've got a long-standing, fraught legal battle that's being now arbitrated by a Crown Court judge to decide even just a technical issue would suggest that any kind of resolution through a DPA might be some way off and indeed quite a myth. And indeed, the SFA might be readying their armoury for full corporate charges.
0: Doesn't sound good for Barclays. Well, we'll keep a close watch on that in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you, Caroline. And let's go finally to Martin for the third item of today's podcast, looking at a couple of developments in the US banking market where we've had good news for Bank of America's chief executive and obviously unfortunate news for Goldman Sachs's chief executive. Martin, fill us in on both of those stories.
3: I would question whether it was such good news for... The Bank of America, Chief Executive Brian Moynihan, because whilst he won the shareholder vote that allows him to keep both titles, chairman and chief executive of the bank, which had been split since 2009 until last year when they were reunited and he was able to take them both, there was quite a lot of grumbling and dissent among investors and analysts. And one critic of the bank derided it as bureaucratic, condescending and dismissive at this meeting. So it didn't all go their way, although they did get 63% of votes cast in their favour. But there's still criticism that there's, you know, long-standing board members who voted through the takeover of Countrywide in 2008 who are still on the board and investors would like to see them replaced because that was a very costly acquisition in terms of legal fees, etc. And also that people are, are noting that, you know, Brian Moynihan, 55 years old, been in place for five years now. He's had, in that time, four CFOs and four chief risk officers and four heads of the wealth division. So there's been a lot of management turnover, and the performance of the bank hasn't been that great. So, you know, still some questions over him. At Goldman Sachs, as you mentioned, unfortunately, Lloyd Blankfein, one of the longest-serving chief executives of any big bank, Um, been running Goldman Sachs for for almost 10 years. He announced that he's got lymphoma, which is a form of cancer. It's one of the most curable forms of cancer. And he says that he will start a treatment of chemotherapy, but intends to work substantially as normal during his treatment. And this comes a year after Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, the chief executive of that bank, said something similar about um, throat cancer. And he has since announced that he's cured of cancer. So so hopefully things will go the same way for, for Lloyd Blankfein. But it does raise the question of succession there. Lloyd Blankfein 61 years old. He's said he wants to stay until he gets returns at the bank back up to mid-teens levels. And they are increasing steadily, but they're not quite there yet. But there's, I think they're pretty well stocked in terms of potential successors. Gary Cohn, who is chief operating officer, Harvey Schwartz, who's the CFO, all the way through to David Solomon, who's co-head of the investment bank, or even in London, Michael Sherwood, who is vice chairman in Europe. So pretty good bench. And they have a lot of confidence that he will be cured of this um, disease.
0: Very good. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio, and also Ray Bulger from Charcoal down the line. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.